As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is God's word. Thanks, Jared. I uh, hope you've been encouraged and challenged by 1 Peter thus far. Uh, the apostle has covered a lot of ground already. We've been in 1 Peter since the beginning of February, and we've only gone through just one chapter, but uh, he has reminded them to set their hope fully on grace, and particularly on the grace of being born again and the promise that being born again holds. And there's really enough here in the opening of 1 Peter to spend a lifetime. Um, our five main imperatives so far in the book of 1 Peter, uh, 1 Peter 1.13, set your hope fully on the grace. And receive these as imperatives, as commands and encouragements. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Christ. 1 Peter 1.15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. 1.17, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. 22, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And 2.2, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. And I've been really grateful for these words and have been trying to say them to my soul throughout the week uh, to, uh, uh, to tell myself to be holy, Dave, uh, in difficult situations. Love earnestly. Now is the time to love. Set your hope fully on grace. Long for the word of the gospel. Now, even in the best of circumstances... These are difficult commands to hear and follow, but the challenge of 1 Peter is that the audience to which he's writing is not living within the best of circumstance. They're living at a really difficult time in a period of increasing persecution. Um, the late uh, University of San Francisco professor, actually, John Elliott, he was a First Peter scholar, um, died in 2020. Um, he writes, the chief weapon of attack employed by the Christian's local neighbors was a barrage of verbal abuse designed to shame, defame, demean, and discredit the believers as social and moral deviants endangering the common good. A strategy of public shaming was employed as a means of social control with the aim of pressuring the minority community to conform to conventional values and standards of conduct and the unrelenting abuse resulted in undeserved suffering on the part of the believers. This is the situation that Peter's writing into. This is the situation that he's giving these commands to be holy as your heavenly father is holy, to love one another earnestly, to long for pure spiritual milk. And so you understand why those commands would be really hard to receive. 
um, with so much noise going up, going around them, and not just distant noise like on a, like when we ch- sort of check our news and stuff and we can put it away, but their immediate relationships, their immediate context was a hard place to be. Um, and so today's passage is where Peter finally begins to address this primary pain point. He begins to turn and focus on their main concern. And the primary question is how do Christians live out their faith publicly in the face of hostility? How do you hold on to Jesus? How do you hold on to hope and to holiness and to love and to longing when the cultural tides around you are so strongly against you, when it comes at great cost? And this is an important question for us too. Uh, Throughout our lives, we will all find ourselves in places and relationships and dynamics where I our identification with Christ will bring dishonor and shame. That's just going to happen in some space. Not every space, miraculously, like we're here gathered together in a very public way, but there's gonna be some space where it's gonna become difficult and we're gonna feel pressure to hide or to relinquish our commitment to the gospel. And so what then should we do? Man, how should we carry ourselves? And that's what really the vast majority of 1 Peter, the remainder of 1 Peter will be about. Uh, But here is when he begins that counsel. So let's pray and ask God to open our hearts to Peter's answer. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are thankful for the city that we live in. Uh, We're thankful for the time that we live in. We experience a great deal of um, freedom and privilege. Uh, we have wonderful neighbors. We have wonderful coworkers. Um, there is so much good and rich um, about the place that we're in. Um, but we acknowledge uh, that you require holiness. You require complete devotion. And Jesus predicted that there will be times where people will hate Christians as they hated you. Uh, We don't wanna be hated for sin. And so Father, would you help us to be a church that is above reproach, uh, to be Christians who um, are full of the fruit of the spirit, are marked by love and patience and kindness and peace and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. Father, would those things be clearly visible in our lives? Um, Father, would you help us to quickly um, seek forgiveness uh, with each other, but also with our neighbors and coworkers when we violate, uh, when we do not love others as we ought. Um, But Father, even as we try, there will be resistance that we will meet. That's just been the pattern of the world. Um, That's been the pattern of salvation, that uh, there is a divisiveness about good There is a divisiveness about grace and about Jesus. And so would you help us to know how to navigate that? Father, I pray that we're not, even though we're not in the circumstances that the Anatolian Christians uh, were in, would you speak to us? Uh, Would you call to mind specific relationships, specific situations, specific opportunities uh, where this scripture will embolden us to hold fast to Jesus and not just secretly, but publicly? Um, We pray all these things in Christ's name, amen. So 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5, the first two verses really form the basis of everything that follows, and it'll shape much of his advice uh, moving forward. In verse 4, he says, As you come to him, to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, 
You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so in a nutshell, here is Peter's strategy for thinking through public rejection. And that is to remember Jesus. Remember that Jesus was publicly rejected by men. He was tried and crucified and buried, but he is chosen and precious in the sight of God. And so the man that you worship, the man you adore, the man who saved you, whom you believe is perfect, both doctrinally you believe he's perfect, and then you just read the Gospels and you know he's perfect. You can't read those stories and not realize that he is the epitome of what humans should be. He was rejected by men, but in the sight of God, he is chosen and precious. And so in the same way you... uh, though rejected by men, are chosen and precious in the sight of God. And the honor of God is worth infinitely more than the honor of men. It's worth more and it's more reliable. And so in the same way that people were mistaken about Jesus, they're mistaken about you too. And so don't be discouraged. Hold fast. That's the message, the sort of nutshell message that he's giving to these struggling Christians. And what makes Peter's argument even stronger is that it's not just based on Jesus' story, but is supported by the entire Old Testament. Peter is not revealing anything new in this letter. This has always been the path of salvation, choosing God in faith over the judgment of others. You see that in all the way from Noah, from Abraham, Joseph, Israel, David, all the way through, is that Faith in God requires struggle. Um, There is struggle that is followed by glory. Um, In 1 Peter 1, which we had to skip, um, he talks about the Old Testament and how the Old Testament and the prophets revealed uh, Jesus, and it says his sufferings and subsequent glories. And that's going to be the pattern that he reads throughout the whole Old Testament and then shares to these Christians that like you're in this pattern. You're not, this isn't a new thing. This is what God has done from the beginning. Peter's logic is based on the pattern he finds in the Old Testament. And so you see that in 1 Peter 2.6. For it stands in Scripture. Why do I say this? Because it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The apostle here appeals to an architectural metaphor that he sees throughout the Old Testament. And the cornerstone is the stone you would place first, right? It would be at the corner, and based on that stone, every other stone would line up. It would sort of establish the axis so that we know what is straight, what is right, He grabs the metaphor from Isaiah 28. In the book of Isaiah, the nation of Judah is under threat from its enemies, and so they're a little small nation, and you have rising empires on either side. And the idea here in chapter 28 is that God is building a refuge for his people, a new temple which will be a place of salvation for them. But uh, he's rejected. That cornerstone is rejected. And so quoting Isaiah 6 in Psalm 118, Peter acknowledges that many people have rejected God's chosen cornerstone, 2-7. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. 
And so Peter is identifying Jesus as the cornerstone of God's new temple, his plan of salvation from the empires of death. And belief in Christ is the decision to line my life up next to Jesus, is I'm going to square my life with his, to take refuge in his work. Unbelief is described as a rejection of Jesus. And so finding in the world some other stone, some other temple, some other place of refuge that will save us from death. In Isaiah, ironically, the prophet names the false savior the people choose as death. So 28 verse 14, it says, Therefore hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. You boast... We have entered into a covenant with death, with the realm of the dead, and we have made an agreement. When an overwhelming scourge sweeps by, it cannot touch us, for we have made a lie our refuge and falsehood our hiding place. So historically, the prophet Isaiah is referring to when the leaders of Judah made a covenant with Egypt to protect them from Assyria. And so they thought that that was the best solution. Rather than trusting the Lord for their safety, they um, bartered with Egypt, thinking that a covenant with them would save them, um, would keep them being conquered by Assyria and then by Babylon. But Isaiah refers to this as foolish. It's a covenant with death, ridiculing how silly it is to try and save yourself from death by making a deal with death. It doesn't work that way. That can't possibly work. And so God, in his mercy, offers an alternative. After the fact, after they've made this deal with Egypt, verse 16, so this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. Verse 17, describing the person and ministry of Jesus. It says, I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. This is the only building that is strong enough to stand up to the storm that's coming. But as for their deal with the devil, hail will sweep away your refuge, the lie, and water will overflow your hiding place. Your covenant with death will be annulled. Your agreement with the realm of the dead will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge sweeps, sweeps by, you will be beaten down by it. And so this is the circumstance that Peter, the cosmic circumstance that Peter's speaking into. So in Isaiah, obviously you're talking about this debate among the leaders on how to survive Babylon, Egypt, Assyria. And then in First and Second Peter, you have people trying to navigate their relationships with the Roman world. But there is a cosmic reality that's going on that Isaiah opens up with this metaphor, with this series of metaphors. And he's appealing both to the Old Testament and to the story of Jesus to call his listeners to put their shame in perspective. Put it in perspective, remember the ending of Jesus's story. That though he was rejected by men, he is chosen and precious in the sight of God. Though he was crucified, he rose again from the grave, never to die. Remember the promise ending of your story. Remember the new birth that you have experienced, that you've only experienced in the smallest bit, but there is a promised inheritance ahead of you. Let, let your promised future speak more loudly than your present experience. 
Remember, too, the promise ending of those who reject God's offer of salvation. They're powerful now. They're scoffing now. But how does it end? They are swept away. Put your shame in perspective. Jason Georges, who's a scholar and missiologist, he's been a missionary in some of the most hostile places in the planet. You actually don't see his face because um, of the danger that he's in. He's in the Middle East now. And he writes in his commentary, believers can resist social shame because they have received divine honor. That that is what strengthens these Christians in 1 Peter, to endure shame because they have received news that they are chosen and precious in the sight of God by grace through faith in Christ. And so the question for us every day, on the best of days, on the days when everything is going well and we are received and accepted, and the worst of days when we are rejected, is do we believe in the divine honor that God has given us that we can resist social shame because we have received divine honor. That is the only thing that will carry us through. We live in a time where we need to remind ourselves of that reality, remembering 1 Peter 2, 6, whoever believes in Jesus will not be put to shame. Whoever believes in Jesus will not be put to shame. Friend, you will never, ever regret believing in Jesus. You will never regret it. You will always forever regret disbelieving in Jesus. At the end of your life, at the beginning of the next life, you will never think, man, I should have kept my options open. I should have shopped around. I should have looked elsewhere. I should have spread out my hope, spread out my devotion. There will be no elsewhere. There is no other hope. And so, On days where you have to pick a side, pick God's side. Maybe you won't have one of those days this week. Certainly, there are so many ways that Christian ethics are universally celebrated and should be celebrated. Um, We see that testimony throughout Scripture, throughout church history, and hopefully from our own experience. Man, the fruit of the Spirit is good everywhere. And so... Our hope and desire is that your workplace, your neighborhood, your uh, family would love the evidence of Christ in you. Our holiness and love redound to the good of our communities, our families, and our workplaces. But there are bound to be some times and some places and some situation where we can't play both sides, where it's not possible. Allegiance to Christ opens you to trouble. And Peter's audience in this season um, of the world, they mostly lived in that space. That's where they were most of the time. We are not mostly in that time, but that's where they were. There are Christians alive today throughout the world who live mostly in this space. This is the daily reality that they live in. And Peter's advice to them and to us is when you have to choose, always choose Jesus. Always choose him. He was rejected by men, but don't reject him because he is chosen and precious. He is the cornerstone of the temple whereby we are saved. Always choose Jesus. Always choose the Bible and the God of the Bible. Always choose the church, his bride. The church is the mother of faith. 
always choose holiness. If you have to choose, it doesn't matter what the world says. Remember, the world has made a covenant with death and it's not going to go well. It's a foolish partnership. She can't be trusted. It's always a little bit wild when you step into the Bible and just realize the story that it's telling. It's a crazy story of a cornerstone, um, people rejecting the cornerstone and tripping. It's just like, it's just this world picture um, that isn't like anything that we think about in the day to day. And I kind of have a confession to make. Um, This is not my first time preaching through 1 Peter, um, and so I've been cheating a little bit. Um, I taught it a couple months in 2015, so seven years ago. And so I thought that that might be helpful to me, but reading your old sermons is pretty embarrassing, right? It's kind of like looking at old pictures of yourself, like frosted tips and like a Nelly compact disc or something. Um, uh, And so they're all worthless. Um, They're also less helpful uh, because it's from seven years ago, from the before time. And I don't know exactly the threshold of irrelevancy, but a lot has happened since 2015. It's impossible to think about all that's happened, right? We have Trump's campaign and then his election and then his presidency. I think at this point he had, he had gone down the gold escalator, but that's it. That's all that happened <laughs> when I um, had preached this message. You have the fires in California, George Floyd, Me Too, QAnon, COVID, January 6th, like all these life-altering things, Ukraine, In 2015, I could not have imagined the next seven years. Um, Everything was unthinkable until it happened. And what's funny is that I opened with a bit about conspiracy theories. Um, And the examples I gave were the moon landing was fake and that Obama was an Islamic Manchurian candidate. And you're just like, sweet, innocent Dave. Um, Right? Those are the days. Obama's forged birth certificate. We were so cute back then with our conspiracies. Uh, conspiracies have only gotten bigger, um, and, I think, and I think what I said still stands, and so um, I want to talk about those, because I tend to dismiss conspiracy theories on principle, uh, because I firmly believe that humanity is too incompetent to carry out those elaborate plans, right? They usually involve people with godlike abilities, able to design elaborate schemes, anticipate every contingency, stick to the plan, eliminate competitors. Like, and the thing is, only gods and devils could do that, which is exactly what Christians believe. And this passage in 1 Peter 2, the chapters in Isaiah, it alludes to a great conspiracy where you are either on the right side or the wrong side, And sometimes when I imagine explaining this outlook on the world to someone, I have to admit, I sound kind of crazy. I feel crazy. 1 Peter 2, along with all of Scripture, is alluding to a great conspiracy behind the world. And the honest truth is that I'm hesitant to believe conspiracy theories except for one, except for this one. It's amazing to think According to the Bible, the world is enthralled in a great conspiracy, complete with an all-powerful guard and an army of fierce angels. He is the Lord of hosts. But there is a great defector, Satan, and his demons. 
But Satan doesn't fight openly, right? He disguises himself as an angel of light. He hides behind spiritual rulers and authorities, principalities and powers. And historically, Christians have identified uh, that he might be embodied in wicked human beings, dictators and bureaucrats and crime bosses and serial abusers. He's embodied in pagan cultures and human vanity and false religions, disease and decay. This world, though, is not rightfully his. He has stolen it. And so God is rescuing the world through his son. And again, the conspiracy language here, long prophesied, long awaited, born in secret. He was hunted by the world's powers and hid in Egypt for his early life. And then he sprang up out of nowhere, a town called Nazareth, in bold opposition to Satan's tribe. He would ultimately be killed by God's enemies, but would, it would all be according to plan. In killing him, they only bruised his foot, but he is coming back and will crush their heads. That's a conspiracy. A good one. Our culture's love for conspiracy theories is a testimony to our ingrained sense that something is wrong. And not just wrong, but sinister and cruel. There is meaning to what is wrong. There is a method to the madness of the world. There is a story here. And it can't be explained away by mere circumstance, by chance, nor can it be explained simply by human skill and ingenuity. There's something deeper at play but we're confused about what it is and where it is. And we think the conspiracy lies wholly outside of us. And we balk at the message of Christ, which tells us that the conspiracy goes deep within. We would rather find explanations that blame others, conspiracies where we save ourselves by our knowledge. And so that's, this is some of why my general counsel to Christians is to avoid anything like a conspiracy theory. Not only are they almost always embarrassingly wrong, they're a distraction. Because even if it is true, even if there is a pizza place in D.C. on which the Clintons are running a child pedophile ring, which would be truly awful, it would still be a minor subplot in the grand blinding of the world, in the cosmic conspiracy that is playing out in our families, cities, and world in far more mundane but just as terrible ways. The problem with the typical conspiracy theorist is he doesn't go far enough. There is a conspiracy behind the conspiracy. And I only have so much social capital with people, and so I don't want to waste it by talking about these lesser conspiracy theories. I want to spend all of it on this big one, that they need Jesus. You need Jesus. Conspiracies are a smokescreen to distract us from the real problem facing the world, which is the reign of death through sin. Christians are those whose eyes have been graciously opened to this greater conspiracy and to the redemption available in Christ. Non-Christians have rejected God's cornerstone, often distracted by lesser problems and decided to take refuge elsewhere, but there's still time. There's still time, and it is the ministry of Christians to point others to the cornerstone of Jesus. But there is danger for us in this service 
living in a world marked by conspiracies, Isaiah 8, uh, from which First Peter quotes, uh, includes one of my favorite Bible verses, um, Isaiah 8, 12, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. Um, I love that line. We should plaster it on our phones and above our computer screens, right? We should recite it before and after we read the news. Be careful what you obsess over. Be careful the stories and causes and meanings you make. Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy and do not fear what they fear nor be in dread, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And this warning was not actually given to the people of Judah. It was given to Isaiah. Because God knows it's hard to hold on to the truth in a conspiratorial age, even for a prophet. It's hard to think straight. It's hard to remember what matters in a noisy place. And we live in such a noisy place. And so God warns Isaiah, don't get entangled in the conspiracies of your community. And hopefully no one here is tempted by QAnon. If you don't know what QAnon is, blessings on you. Don't look. Um, but that is not the only conspiracy on offer. We live in an anxious age and we wake up to headlines that are written to appeal to our fear and shame. Right? And not just political ones either. Headlines about our finances, our health, our relationships, our city, even our churches. And the danger with these fears is not only that they tell us false stories or incomplete stories, but they draw us away from Jesus toward other cornerstones. They make us think that refuge from the coming storm, whatever that is, is found elsewhere in politics, in career, in health changes. And those will not stand firm in the end. Fear and shame are real. Sin is real, corruption is real, conspiracies are real, but the only solution is found in Jesus. And so I encourage you to ask yourself, what conspiratorial fears are capturing your mind and heart now? What keeps you up at night? What meaning-making are you doing with your life, with your relationships, your career, your news that doesn't factor in the good news of the death and resurrection and coming of Christ? Satan is conspiring to avert our eyes, to distract us with shame and fear. And Peter is writing as the voice of reason, don't be distracted. This is the grace of God. Stand firm in it. He is the answer to all pain and struggle. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. In the face of the world's shame, uh, it would be easy for Peter to shame the world. And there is a harshness to the truth. There's a reality of uh, the way that Peter speaks about those who disbelieve, that those who disbelieve reject the cornerstone. 
um, and that's a big deal. Um, but that is really not the main focus of 1 Peter. He doesn't belabor all that's wrong with the world. Most of the time, he spends just showering the church with honor. That that's actually what will motivate them. It, we don't need to, and I think I've said this before, we don't need like competing shame to where we react to the world's shame, a boss's shame, our family's shame by just shaming them. That's not the advice that Peter ever gives, and we'll see that in the coming weeks. What he does is he showers them with honor. So as Jason George says, we can endure public shame because of the honor we've received from the Lord. And listen to it. The honor is not generic. 1 Peter 2, 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. These are amazing titles to receive, especially remember that the church deserved none of them. Salvation is by grace. They didn't deserve these honors, but they were given them. And they aren't empty words either. The titles are real. They come with responsibility, with dignity. It turns out that we have a role to play in this conspiracy. What a privilege to know the truth. What a responsibility to walk around with open eyes. What if we were as zealous as the wackos who deny the Holocaust, right? People who get involved in those conspiracies, they go deep, right? They do YouTube videos. And I'm not recommending that that's what we do. I don't think that that's going to convince anybody. But what if we were as diligent in our pursuit of the truth and in our persuasive effect as other people were? Our conspiracy is much greater. What if we were as intent to get the word out about salvation free in Christ as those who have predicted the next features of the iPhone, right? Like you always see these, or I do, because I'm a sort of nerd, where people are scouring like patent um, office things and saying like, oh, I think the iPhone in three years will have a helicopter or something. Like it, it's wild that, that people are so devoted what if we were as devoted, as thoughtful to engaging our friends in so much more mundane things, in the everyday things of life, and yet there is this great cosmic story behind the mundane? Is not our news so much more important? Is not our news so much better? God has saved us. He has provided shelter for us in Christ but he has also set us alongside Christ as living stones next to the cornerstone. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Uh, these titles are from Exodus 19 when God first commissions the nation of Israel, and so he applies that to the church. And like Israel, the church is not called to just exist. They're not called to just be there. Interestingly, Israel is never called to conquer their neighbors or to expand. Um, that's not a part of Israel, the, God's vision for the nation of Israel. It's not an empire. It never becomes an empire. And yet, they are not just supposed to be there. They are a nation of priests. They are intercessors and intermediaries, pleading with God for the world and pleading with the world for God. 
representing him and representing the world. Our lives are not our own. We spend our lives for the good of the world and for the glory of God. And so it's worth pausing to ask, in what way are you called to be a royal priest on this planet? How are you living out your priesthood? Do you consider yourselves a priest at your workplace with your children in your neighborhood with their friends? That's why I've always advocated for some marker, the the church traditions that will have sort of some physical marker on them that just always identifies them. If only we could just move around the world with that sort of physical identifier that we are there as ambassadors for Jesus. Again, we're not just chosen for Bible studies or small group get-togethers. Like, we are mediators between God and men. We give our lives to interceding for other people. We give our lives to sacrifices on the behalf of others. The world is under our care. Who are you priest to? These roles are real. The honor is real. Just because they're metaphors doesn't make them less real. I think a lot of us are tempted I know I am tempted to read 1 Peter 2 and just think about these identities as kind of honorary degrees, right? If Stanford calls me up and gives me a doctorate, like I'm going to go and I'm going to hang it up on the wall, but it doesn't mean much, right? Just because Mike Tyson got an honorary doctorate from Central State University in Ohio doesn't mean he's teaching courses next spring, right? He's not qualified to do that and they're not asking him. But the thing is, if you take any subject... No matter how advanced or obscure, Mike Tyson is far more qualified to teach you that subject than I am qualified to be a royal priesthood for the king of the universe, to be a holy nation. Because not only did I not have anything on my own to earn this identity, everything about me goes against my appointment for these roles. I am the least qualified person. And so it's hard not to look at these titles, at this identity, and not dumb them down or write them off. But that's the miracle of grace. It would be easy for someone to hear me and say, like, who qualifies you to be a kingdom of priests? Isn't that a little prideful? And you're kind of like, it would be. But that's grace, that he chooses people who are completely unqualified, who are qualified in the opposite direction, and appoints them as his messengers. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. This is precisely the excellencies that we are meant to proclaim with our lives. God gave Jesus Christ for my pardon to pay for all the wrongs I have ever done and ever would do, to die in my place so that I may be forgiven and reconciled and adopted into God's family. He gave Jesus Christ for my substitute, He is my righteousness. Before I'm the chosen race, he is the chosen one. Before I'm a royal priesthood, he is the great high priest. Before I'm holy, he is holy. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And God gave Jesus Christ for my power, sending the spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, the same spirit who raised him from the dead to raise me to new life and create in me good fruit and good works for his glory. By the pardon and power of Christ, these roles are real. If you are in Christ, if you believe this is really you, the honor is for you who believe the conspiracy. The honor is for you who believe in Christ. And so let's do everything we can to make sure that we believe and that we believe loudly.
Let's pray. Dear Father, we are challenged every time we read the scriptures. I am challenged. As we come into a story that is so different than the story stories that I write for myself throughout the week. And so I'm thankful for the rhythm of worship on Sunday where we can come together and remember that this is the explanation of the world, of what's right with the world, of what's wrong with the world, of our only hope. Father, we are thankful and recognize that it is only by grace that our eyes have been opened. And so we thank you for that. Help us to follow rhythms of grace which keep our eyes open. Father, protect us from obsessions which would distract us from the real struggle with the world, which is sin and death. That would, that, would, that would cause us to use our social capital with other people to convince them of things that maybe are true but aren't important. Father, we um, ask that you would open our eyes further. Um, Father, for those who are kind of here, maybe not Christians, who are kind of blown away by this story that does sound crazy, uh, Father, would there be an element of truth with, which would cause them to sort of go down the rabbit hole, uh, to pull the thread and realize that uh, you are God of the universe. You are in charge of all things. You are worthy of worship. That sin and death are what's wrong and that only Jesus can save. He is the chosen and precious cornerstone. He is the rock whereby we find refuge from death, uh, the ark that will save us from the scourge that everyone faces. Uh, help us to find winsome ways and to endure through First and Second Peter, or First Peter rather, and um, and be like winsome, joyful but serious. Uh, witnesses to the story of salvation. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.